This is an exciting day indeed for all of us when we get to gather as so many of the different constituency pieces of this community that we call Defender Nation, but of course all underneath the umbrella of the citizenship within the kingdom of God. Grandparents, parents, board of trustees, those watching live stream online from around, alumni all over the place, students, prospective students here on campus visit day, welcome to all of you, welcome to this time together. This is exciting for all of us to, to gather as a community and just not only start this weekend in a time of worship, but recognize that all of the things that are about to take place this weekend are all our forms of worship, all lived before the face of God, all given to his glory. As Dort, we're happy to welcome you in order to celebrate all of this time together this weekend. And there's other things that sort of happened within us too. In a pastor's heart, when I see this many people gathered in one place, I want to do one of two things. I want to get an offering plate. Or I want to tell stories that embarrass my in-laws. And seeing as there are no offering plates, I married into a family that I thought has a defective storytelling gene. I don't know if you've met people like this when you sit down and then they, they begin to tell you a story. The story sounds something like this. So I was at work the other day and this person came in and she was going to tell me about something really... She had on the cutest pink shoes. <laughs> I think I know the ones you're talking about. I saw them at Sioux Falls. Yeah, that store. Um, yeah, when you go down to the end and it's around. Yeah, yeah, there's this girl who works there. She is the sweetest thing. And I'm sitting in the back watching all of this happen thinking, we've just rabbit trailed off of a rabbit trail off of a rabbit trail. <laughs> is anybody going to get to the point of this story? I say that all in jest. I married into one of the absolute best families, and they've taught me a ton of things, and one of them is the lost art of the lingering meal. When you spend so much time together that you have time to simply enjoy people's presence, and if a story takes seven different turns, then that's just what you're in for. And we joke about it together. Two weeks ago, my brother-in-law sits down at the Sunday dinner table, and he says, sit back, it's going to be a Vandervliet story. <laughs> and we all just kind of know this. But the funny thing is, is I've learned in this whole process that actually it's the little rabbit trails of life that you run down that end up teaching you the most. One of my mentors told me at the beginning of ministry that, Aaron, it's in the margins. It's in the, the stuff you didn't expect that all the real ministry happens. And eyes of faith will always open up to see these sorts of things. So we're going to look at a text today in the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to look for the details that Mark wouldn't have to have included in the story, but he did anyway, and they tell us something significant. Not only is there a story within a story in this text, but there's details within the story within the story that actually tell us that much more about who Jesus is. And what he's doing. You see, all semester we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, looking at stories of the mighty deeds of Jesus. And we've been learning along the way that how we understand who he is, how we understand and accept his identity, how we form our Christology will always inform our discipleship. In fact, it will inevitably form our discipleship. The last few weeks, we've worked through a couple of different miracle stories. Jesus, of course, calming the storm of the disciples on the boat, and he's teaching us one of three categories of mighty deeds we find in the Gospels. Number one, the nature miracles. 
feeding of the 5,000, calming the storm, walking on the sea. And then there's all these stories of healing of, of exorcisms of, of the demons. And that happens right before this text in the, the healing of the man cursed with the legion of demons, the, the garrison demoniac. And then now we get to a story just rattled off in rapid succession, healing, 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 healing. And this is all happening because the text that comes after the one we're going to look at today is Jesus sending out the disciples for the first time. Because he wants them to know just who this is that you are working as an ambassador on behalf of. You see, if we haven't formed our Christology properly before the cross, we will never know how to tell the story rightly. Jesus is still the center of all of this, and I want to show you in the story today how he reveals his identity again to the disciples and to all of us, and how it changes how we do ministry and walk through life together. Pick it up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and I'll read a little bit and then we'll stop. I'll read a little bit and we'll stop. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. In the beginning of this story, we meet a man named Jairus, and it's so rare in the gospel stories that we're ever given somebody's name. In fact, I don't know if you've ever realized this before, but throughout the synoptic gospels, not a single person who gets healed, their name is ever revealed, except for one person later on in the gospel of Mark, and I don't want to spoil that, so we'll save it for later. But in this story, the man's name is given because the name obviously meant something to anybody who would have been reading it. He's a man of significance. But for all of his authority and all of his clout and all of his wealth, he can't do what really needs to be done in his life right now. He is not, at this moment, a synagogue leader. He is not, in this moment, a religious teacher. He is not the keeper of the keys of the kingdom. He's simply a father whose little daughter is dying. And in language that mimics the same way the leper in chapter 1 almost embarrassingly throws himself before Jesus... Here again, too, the prestigious synagogue leader, Jairus, does the same thing. He's simply a parent longing for healing in this moment. What's ironic, though, is what he asks Jesus to do. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. The word here for healed is the Greek verb sozo. It comes actually from an an Aramaic, which is probably what they're speaking in this to one another, of course, in Israel at this time. And in fact, that actually comes up later in the story as we're given an Aramaic term. So we know they're speaking Aramaic. The Aramaic word for sozo, which is often translated throughout the New Testament either to be healed or to be saved, is the Aramaic word yesha, which of course is a derivative from Hebrew yeshua, which is the name of Jesus. Yeshua literally means Yahweh to the rescue. And so this synagogue leader comes before Jesus, asking him in Aramaic, Yeshua, probably from a Hebrew derivative, Yeshua, Yahweh to the rescue. Can you come and Yahweh to the rescue, my daughter? Can you come and Jesus her? Is essentially what he's asking, and yet he doesn't even know it. The one thing that she stands the most in need of is to be Jesus. Mark kind of 
verbs Jesus in this passage, and it's going to come up again, and this word comes back. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be Jesused and live. So, Jesus interrogated him of the, as to whether or not he knew the five points of Calvinism before going with him. <laughs> Do you ever notice that Jesus just like with reckless abandon throws himself into situations? He never tests people's theology. He doesn't even ask them about their faith. He teaches that the discipleship in moving into the places of brokenness in the world are not dependent on somebody else's theology. They're not even dependent upon whether or not they like you. Jesus interacts with people in the story who represent his enemies and the lowest people in all of society, all in the same story. Everybody gets to get jesus And the followers of Jesus who will understand his identity will always understand that our calling is the same. To every strata of society, to every corner of the globe, to every person, every race, every tongue that are all going to find their knee bowed and their tongue declaring the lordship of Christ one day. Everybody Everybody is invited to get Jesus. And so Jairus, with Jesus coming along, Jesus asking himself the questions that he teaches us in his parables. This is what we are supposed to do in the same way in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Who Jesus holds up as this model of faith, the two who go before, asking themselves their question, what will happen to me if I stop? Jesus' heart and his disciples' heart always ask the question, what will happen to this person if I don't stop? And so Jesus went with them. Not a lot of detail there, is there, Mark? Jesus just goes to where their brokenness is. 24b, we keep going. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be jesus Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling, trembling with fear, told him the truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith is Jesus to you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus is traveling along with a very important person to a very important appointment. There is a little girl who is on her deathbed. Nothing warms the hearts of people more when a charity is cast for giving something towards children. There's something about children that absolutely break our heart in their innocence in all of their vulnerability. And Jesus is going along on the way, actually, to maybe he knows this, maybe he doesn't, the first resurrection story that's going to happen in the Gospels. This is kind of a big deal. But Jesus stops for this person who has lived under a blanket of shame in a part of her that nobody else can see. 
For 12 years, she's not been able to go in with everybody else into worship. For 12 years, she's been ceremonially unclean. For 12 years, there is a wake behind her where people are not allowed to sit. They're not allowed to come and touch. They're not allowed to go near even the seats that she has been on because of her affliction. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 When a woman who has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. One of the things we've been talking about throughout this series, too, is helping us to understand some of the cultural difference we have between now and the people who lived then. To be ceremonially clean or unclean is not to be unholy or holy. It wasn't good, bad, right, wrong. It was just clean, unclean. And it all had to do with the fact, not because one is dirty or one is wrong or one is part reflection of a horrible part of who we are, but if you actually notice all of these Old Testament laws that are wrapped around sexuality and and, and cleanliness, it all has to do with not a fear of and a disdain for that which is sexual, but a reverence for that which is. And yet the same laws that have been created are the same laws here that are keeping this woman out. And there's this juxtaposition that's taking place between the two characters that we meet in the story. Jairus holds the keys to the synagogue, but this woman isn't allowed in the door. Jairus has a name. We're not given her name at all. She's just a woman in the crowd. Jairus can run straight up to Jesus. She sneaks in just to simply grab a touch. Jairus is a man. She is a woman. Jairus has people around him and a daughter that he loves. My little daughter is dying. This woman apparently has no body. So she has to sneak the most embarrassing thing, an aspect of our being that even within the Christian community today, we sort of hide and have a hard time reconciling our sexuality with our Christianity and all the parts of ourselves that we want nobody else to see. And it seems odd that Jesus, of all people so perfectly loving, actually doesn't, in the secret, in the quiet, calm place, heal this woman. Rather, he elevates her. Jairus, the man of standing, is broken. The woman who's already broken, Jesus lifts up. Every valley will be healed. Every mountain made low. The leveling in the kingdom of God taking place in this passage. And she's being held up as the model. He's supposed to be the leader of Israel, or one of them at least. She's supposed to be on the outside looking in. And Jesus takes her, brings her into the spotlight, and heals her. And will not let anybody else miss the fact that this is worth stopping for. Everybody else through the eyes of the world is always going to want to take us. We're going to see the grand. We're going to see the glorious. Jesus needs his disciples to know before you go out, you need to have eyes to see the deepest places of brokenness. And I have come to put people back together in the most shameful part of who they are, in the sins that nobody knows about, in the places where you and I feel the most shame and the most brokenness, the most embarrassment, the part we don't want anybody else to see, even among, sometimes especially among, our Christian brothers and sisters. Jesus wants to go there with us, and Jesus us. Jesus wants to take the people of great prominence, and he wants to take the lowest of the low, and he wants to Jesus them all. And he holds her up, 
And he teaches us something about who she is and how he sees humanity. Jairus says, my little daughter is dying. Jesus now speaks to this woman and notice what he calls her in the passage. Daughter. The only person in all the Gospels to ever be referred to by this title. The one who had no one is seen so clearly by the eyes of Yahweh to the rescue. And he sees her as his daughter with great delight. Once again, notice the details in the story as we keep going and finish up the text now. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Just believe. What kind of belief, Jesus? The kind of belief that this woman exercises, who's now held up in the middle of the story as the model of faith. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not, a, not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. She gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus arrives on the scene, and in that day there was actually a, 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 technically a guild of mourners. You would hire a guild of mourners to come whenever somebody had passed away. And they wail loudly and they create a great commotion. But God is not interested in his people getting invested in a great commotion. God is interested in his people getting involved in the great commission. And making disciples is a big difference between creating commotion and answering a commission. To commission is to join Jesus in, to co-mission, to stand alongside, be like him, heal like he healed, go to the places that he would go to, care the way he cared. Restore people the way he restores them. And so Jesus isn't interested in the commotion. He's interested in his Father's commission and in giving us one as well. And we're told in the story that the girl is 12 years old. And the woman, actually, who had been bleeding was for 12 years. And again, it's the details of the story that make the story, because that's actually irrelevant. That's sort of a Vandervliet rabbit trail in the story. And yet somehow, Mark saw fit as the most efficient, most economical gospel writer to make sure that these details are included in the story. Why? Because throughout Scripture, 12 is always the number that represents the fullness of the people of God. For those in the margins and for those in the positions of power. For those who have the confidence to run straight up to Jesus and for those who cower in shame in the corners because of not feeling good enough. Jesus comes to Jesus them all. Everybody are his daughters and his sons invited into this feast. And he's trying to show the disciples this is what it looks like. 
I will walk on water and I will calm the storms. I will cast out the legions of demons and show you who the real enemies of Israel are. And I will restore you from top to bottom. I will restore you from the inside out. I don't want a part of you. I want the whole mess. And I can make it better than you could have ever done on your own. And that is the invitation in the kingdom of God. That is the vision for discipleship. And Jesus needs the disciples to get this before he sends them out in the next chapter. And Dort College needs 18,000 alumni to get this if we're going to be effective in the world that we are called into. And not just here, but beyond all of us. This is our role. This is our calling. It's what we get to be a part of. Do our eyes light up? Do our imaginations get excited about the healing ministry of God in the world? Because these are not stories to get told to our children simply at bedtime. They are stories to be enacted and lived out all day long. And then we get to stand and celebrate what it is that God has done for us. To celebrate this kind of forgiveness, the restoration from that kind of shame. We can create cultures within our church where you can come forward because of shame, because of sin, because of turmoil and ways that people have suffered. And as the believers in God, because we're so excited about the grace and redemption that is offered us in Jesus Christ, we don't shame people and we don't start talking behind their back. Can you imagine a, a culture of grace that was so excited about the healing ministry of Christ that every time one more person came forward and said, me, I have a sin, the whole church, yeah, here we go, this is a moment. Because eyes of faith will always see confession as an opportunistic moment. Eyes of faith will always look at the places where nobody else is looking. And the kingdom of God is always going to come in the ways we don't expect it. Don't write anybody off. Don't call anybody beyond your forgiveness. Jesus will have all of it. Top to bottom, inside out, you and me, to the shores of every nation, all the way through. This is the King of Kings and the Man of Sorrows. This is the one who empowers us and breaks us. This is the one who says, deny yourself and then I'll take you through a resurrection on the other side. He creates a discipleship for us that is always a paradox. It is always tension. And says, come with me. Come with me. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Every last one of you. If you'll let me do my work, if you'll accept me in this role. And ask the praise team to come on back up and lead us in a song as we sort of offer this declaration back up to God as we close. Will you join me in prayer as they come on up? Father, we pray that we can be a community of grace that celebrates and looks for your work everywhere. That we can follow the model given to us in Christ where even his enemies are ministered to. Their children are healed. Give us eyes of faith to see the places where you are calling us. And where even the crowds will mock our decisions because they stand so against the cold, hard, physical evidence of death all around us. Father, give us imaginations that are enlivened by your Holy Spirit to say here, here too, life comes in your name. Here, here too, the strong name of Jesus is going to reign. Father God, you are so good. You are Yahweh to the rescue.
You are God with us, the King of kings and the man of sorrows, to set all of us free. Father, in this moment, Jesus, each one of us, once again, make us yours. Show us who you are so we know how to live this life well. For your glory, in your name, amen.